I encourage you to take a Bible and turn to the second letter of John. Last week we concluded our series from 1 John, and today we begin 2 John. The Lord willing, two weeks from now we will look at 3 John. 2 and 3 John are the two shortest New Testament letters. They are a single chapter. They are shorter than the other single chapter New Testament letters of Philemon and Jude. And they carry similar themes to what we've seen in 1 John. And so we're going to read all of 2 John. It's 13 verses. And I invite you to follow along as I read. Hear God's word. The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son in truth and love. I rejoiced greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as you were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting, for whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works." Though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. The children of your elect sister greet you. As I considered this letter of 2 John and considering the day in which we live, a day when it's not uncommon for some to sit in a room with other people and not communicate by looking each other in the eye and speaking to one another, but rather by using a phone to send a text message or perhaps take a picture of oneself and send it to the person sitting across the room or even next to them by using some app on said phone. Because we live in such a day, it was tempting for me as I considered the second letter of John to want to take the next to the last verse, verse 12, and preach on the importance of face-to-face relationships. Verse 12 says this, Though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face-to-face so that our joy may be complete. But while considering that, I recalled the words of my preaching professor who said that preaching is not an attempt to get others with the gospel but rather showing others where God has already gotten you with the gospel. In other words, the task of the preacher is not to get people to shape up, but to proclaim the good news of the gospel, which is our hope. Having ruled out that possibility for preaching, I then went 
to verses 10 and 11, which says this, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house for, or give him any greeting for whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Those verses have always intrigued me as I have wrestled with how to respond when people come to your door and want to share their beliefs about God. You've no doubt had those people come to your door and it presents a quandary. What do you do? Do you stand there and talk? Do you invite them in? Do you say, go away? Do you act like you're not home and turn off the lights and close the blinds so they can't see anyone in the house? The Lord willing, we will touch on all those verses today, but my intent is to focus on verse 8, which says, Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. So that's where we're going. And before we get there, I want to just to summarize this letter of 2 John. It begins with a greeting to the elect lady and her children. It ends with a greeting from your elect sister. And so you could say this is a tale of two sisters. You got two sisters in different cities and John, the elder, is writing to them, writing to one of them from presumably the other one. And some have speculated that perhaps this elect lady was a particular woman in the early church and they've tried to name her using the Greek words in this verse. I think that is a misguided attempt. I believe that what John is saying is that he's writing to a church. That's the elect lady and her children are those who make up the church. Some of them are walking in the truth. Some of them are not. Some of them have gone out and like we saw in 1 John, they've gone after other teaching. They've gone astray from the teaching that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. We see this in verse 7, that many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. So there are these two sisters, two churches, and the people that make up those churches. And that's who John is writing to, one of these churches, probably in the area of Ephesus. And he writes a a message to this church that is very similar in some ways to what we saw in 1 John. He begins in verse 2 to point out that truth binds believers together as one. And so in verse 2, he says, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. And then he says that We have true love for one another based on the truth of God. So because we have known God's love to us in Christ, which is the truth of the gospel, we are able to share true love with one another. And that truth of God also assures us of God's goodness towards us. And you see in verse 3, an unusual greeting, often in the New Testament letters, we see things like grace and peace be to you. But here we see grace, mercy, and peace will be with us. It's not a wish or a desire. It's a statement that this will come about. And it's based on the assurance of the truth that God has revealed. He goes on in verse 4 to say that there's great joy in knowing others are walking in the truth. We'll see this again when we get to 3 John, where he says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. 
Now, if you're a parent or a grandparent, you may have lots of desires for your children and grandchildren, but if you're a believer and you have children or grandchildren, your greatest joy, your greatest desire is for your children and grandchildren to walk in the truth of Jesus Christ. And so he says in verse 4, I rejoiced greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth. What better gift can God give us related to our children than that they live in a way that honors and glorifies Jesus Christ. In verse 7, we see that the content of this truth, and that is that Jesus Christ, in Jesus Christ, God has come in the flesh. We saw this in 1 John. That was the main doctrinal point that John was making in that first letter, that Jesus is the Christ, that God has come in the flesh. And there were some in the early church who were denying this. It said, no, Jesus may be a man, but he's not really God. Or he may appear to have flesh, but he doesn't really. Verse 7 tells us the content of the truth that John is writing that he's preaching, and that is that Jesus Christ, in Jesus Christ, God has come in the flesh to redeem us, to restore us to a right relationship with himself. And that truth of God, that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh, is intended to produce fruit. It is intended to bring about love in our lives towards God and towards one another. There's horizontal love for one another mentioned in verse 5. Now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we've had from the beginning, that we love one another. We saw this in 1 John again, that the truth that God has come in the person of his son, Jesus Christ, in the flesh, to redeem us and to enable us to love one another and to love God and to obey his commandments, which is the practical working out of love towards God. So here, the same thing. Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. Because he has come, he has enabled us to love one another, and he has enabled us to walk in love towards God, which is in the obedience of faith. You see that in verse 6. This is love, that we walk according to his commandments. But the reality in these early churches and in the church in every age is that not all people hold to the truth. He tells us in this text that those who reject Jesus Christ in the flesh are of the Antichrist. We see that in verse 7. Many deceivers have gone out into the world. Those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh, such a one is the deceiver and the Antichrist. And so he says there's this danger afoot, and so therefore you need to watch yourselves. It's a word of caution. Be on guard. Watch yourselves. Pay close attention. In 1 Timothy 4.16, Paul wrote to Timothy to pay careful attention to yourself, yourselves, and to the teaching. So in other words, he was saying, watch your manner of life and watch what you teach, that it's faithful to God's word. In my experience, every area of splitting and schism in the church has been a result of one of those two things. Either someone has veered from a godly lifestyle or they have ceased to proclaim the truth of the gospel and they're presenting a false gospel. 
So John warns here that you don't want to lose the reward for the work of faith. In verse 8, watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for. We hear all the time of people who have lost something that they invested greatly in. We hear of tremendously gifted athletes who have spent countless hours in the gym working out, lifting weights, getting stronger and faster. And then they're dismissed, suspended from a team because of a violation of team rules. They have lost what they worked for. It's pretty much standard fare each year at this time to hear of someone who's not able to graduate Even though they've completed all the academic requirements, some foolish decision has prevented them from either walking across the stage in graduation and receiving their diploma, or maybe even from graduating at all. Just this past week, there were a couple of pastors in the news who lost what they had worked for, for various reasons. There is a danger that we would go astray. And so John says, watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for. Now we're going to get into this more, but when he talks about losing what we've worked for, he's not talking about earning salvation from God or earning anything from God, but rather the work of faith. Our works demonstrate the reality of our faith. If we're truly treasuring Jesus Christ, trusting him, then works are the fruit of that faith. And so you don't want to lose what you've worked for. You want to receive a full reward. But this concept of the reward is a difficult concept for us to understand from a biblical perspective. In verse 9, we see that there were some who were veering away from the teaching of Christ. Verse 9 says, everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. So there were some who were going beyond the gospel. They were adding to the gospel. They were saying that Jesus was not enough. He may be important, but he's not enough. You need more. This may have been Gnosticism, which relied on secret knowledge. And they may have been saying, you need to go on and acquire this additional spiritual knowledge to be really acceptable to God. But you can recognize deceivers by the way they go ahead alone. They were going on and going off by themselves. They were not abiding in the teaching of Christ Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son, but these people were not resting there. They were going on to a different destination and location. And so in verse 10, he says, If anyone comes into the church to deceive, do not receive them. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting, for whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works." Here's where we get to that issue of what happens when someone comes to your door and they want to tell you what they believe about God and it's not consistent with the Bible. I think the context of this passage gives us some insight here. The context was that in the early church, when people traveled, when missionaries traveled, 
They needed a place to stay. They didn't have modern hotels. Inns were flea-infested and dilapidated. They had reputations of being pretty much a house of ill repute. And so traveling missionaries, traveling Christians didn't want to stay in these inns. Innkeepers were known as being um, abusive and taking advantage of people. And so they would look for homes of other believers in which to stay when they traveled. And so what John is saying here is when someone comes and, to you and they're looking to stay with you, they're looking to have you feed them and house them and provide for their needs, if they don't bring this teaching that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, then don't receive them, don't even greet them. He's not talking about unbelievers as in 1 Corinthians 5 where it says, I'm not telling you to have nothing to do with immoral people in the world, but those who bear the name of brother and who are living in immorality. It's the same thing here, I believe, that this is people who claim to be followers of Christ brought a different teaching. John is saying, have nothing to do with them. Don't support them because if you welcome them into your home, if you feed them, if you give them physical and financial support, you are participating in their wicked works. So I don't believe this is forbidding you to stand at your doorstep or even invite someone in and sit down and show them from Scripture the good news of Jesus Christ. But if someone comes into the church and is trying to articulate a different teaching, then we do not receive them. We do not even greet them. We leave them to God for him to discipline. And so we come to the reward again, the reward of fellowship with God and others for eternity. In verses 12 and 13, we've seen that he was writing with paper and ink, but he would rather be face to face so that our joy might be complete. This is reminiscent of 1 John, where he said, we're writing these things so that our joy may be complete. And then he closes with the words, the children of your elect sister greet you. So there's this fellowship between believers in the church that God created for us to enjoy. God has created us to be with him and with others forever. And God offers a reward to us. But when we think of this reward, this concept of reward can be troublesome because it may bring to mind images of training dogs with treats. Have you ever watched the Westminster Kennel Club dog show? These people come out there with their quaffed dogs, they're beautifully groomed, and they're perfectly behaved, and they prance around the ring and the show ring, and every once in a while, the handler or trainer reaches down to the dog. You think they're just patting them on the nose, but they're slipping them something. They're slipping them a treat, a reward. And we don't do ourselves a favor if we think of reward in that way when, we, when it comes to God and heavenly rewards, that God is giving us something else to get us to behave. That's not the idea. You perhaps have used rewards with your children. Lots of us perhaps have used reward charts on the refrigerator. And you put a little check mark, and after they complete so many things, you might give 
some special treat taken out for ice cream or something like that. Or if you have a child who's potty training, there may be a special reward if that child uses the toilet instead of their diaper. It might be an M&M or a piece of candy, whatever it might be. There's different kinds of rewards that we use in this life. But when we come to scripture and it talks about rewards, the reward The motivation for us is not something other than God. It is God himself. In Genesis 15.1, where God had made a promise to Abram that he would be the father of many nations, and at this point he didn't yet have a son, and he cries out to God, Oh God, what will you give me when I remain childless and a slave in my household is my only heir? And God tells him, Abram, I am your very great, your exceedingly great reward. God is the reward. We don't, we must not think of the reward as pearly gates, mansions in heaven, street of gold. The reward is God himself, that we get to enjoy God in his presence forever. To regard something else as the reward makes it an idol. So if we think about heaven and we think the best thing about heaven is I won't have any more sickness. I won't have any more pain. My body will be completely made whole. If we think that's the best thing, then that becomes an idol for us. If we think in heaven, I'll have a perfect golf swing, then that becomes an idol for us. The great reward of heaven is God himself. Like God said to Abram, I am your exceeding great reward. So God has prepared a glorious reward for us. 1 Corinthians 2, 9 and 10 says, No eye has seen, nor ear has heard, nor mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. Isaiah 64, 4 says, No one has heard with the ear, seen with the eye, perceived a God like you who works, who acts for those who wait for him. Our God is a great reward, the very greatest reward. We dare not substitute something else for God as our motivation to live a godly life. In this text, John writes that he wants his hearers to receive a full reward. John was a shepherd and he cared about the flock that was placed in his charge. As a shepherd, I care about you and I want each one here to receive a full reward. I want the outcome of your faith to one day be that you will hear the Lord Jesus himself say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Every believer will receive a full reward. They will receive as much of God as they want. And even today, you can have as much of God as you want. I don't know how much of God you have, but you can have as much as you want. And you have already as much of God as you want. There will be varying degrees of reward in heaven. And that's a hard thing to consider because it seems like if there are varying degrees, then there's going to be comparison. And I'm going to be looking at this person and that person and thinking about, well, why did they get that and I only got this? Jonathan Edwards, back in December of 1740, reflected on that issue. 
He was preaching from Romans 2.10, and he talked about the fact that there will be no envy in heaven because when we see someone else who has great glory and great happiness and great holiness through Christ, we will not envy them. We will have perfect love for them, and so we rejoice in the joy that they have. And they, looking at us, will rejoice in us and the joy that we have. We will perfectly love one another. And so varying degrees of glory and varying degrees of reward will not pose a problem in heaven. Like salvation, heavenly reward is received by grace through faith. It's often said that we're saved by grace through faith, but then we work for rewards. And sometimes what people mean by that is that we are saved one way, namely by faith, but then rewards, we rely on ourselves and our efforts and our works. Lee pointed out this morning from Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, that we are saved by grace through faith, but that God created us for good works. The good works are evidence of the saving faith in our heart. And so like salvation, heavenly reward is received by grace through faith. When we trust in God, when we treasure Jesus Christ supremely, we are motivated to seek him with all of our heart and we receive from him. If God is the gospel, will he not reward us highly for helping others enjoy him more fully? But the reward will not be something other than God, namely a bigger mansion or a better view or a better golf swing. The reward will be God himself. And any reward that we receive is also a gift from God. Rewards are given for faith. Faith embraces Christ as the supreme treasure and God is pleased when we treasure Christ supremely. So when you do the work of faith, when you do works of righteousness, you show that Jesus is worthy of all trust and honor and God rewards that faith with the gift of himself forever. Do not think of heavenly rewards as something other than God. God is the greatest reward. What could be better than having all that you want of God? But sometimes we just can't get that concept. C.S. Lewis talked about physical intimacy between a husband and a wife and he wrote this, these words, the letter and spirit of, of scripture and of all Christianity forbid us to suppose that life in the new creation will be a sexual life. Jesus said there will not be marriage in heaven. And this reduces our imagination to the withering alternatives either of bodies which are hardly recognizable as human bodies at all or else a perpetual fast. As regards to the fast, I think our present outlook might be like that of a small boy who, on being told that the sexual act was the highest bodily pleasure, should immediately ask whether or not you ate chocolates at the same time. On receiving the answer no, he might regard the absence of chocolates as the chief characteristic of sexuality. In vain would you tell him that the reason why lovers in their raptures don't bother about chocolates is that they have something better to think of. The boy knows chocolate. He does not know the positive thing that excludes it. We are in the same position. So when we think about heaven and think, there isn't marriage in heaven, how could heaven be good? We don't know what heaven is. We haven't experienced it. We know if some of us know physical intimacy and we know that's a good gift from God for a husband and a wife to enjoy together. 
but God has greater things than we could conceive of for those who love him. Lewis goes on to say, we know the sexual life we do not know except in glimpses the other things which in heaven will leave no room for it. So John writes that there is a great reward, that there's great joy in the presence of God, that this reward is received by faith, demonstrated through works, and he encourages his um, hearers to be faithful, to pursue, to persevere. Now, runners and cyclists and perhaps any who have engaged in athletic activity know about finishing well. John is writing to his hearers and wanting them to finish well. If you're a runner or a cyclist, if you start out too fast, you'll expend all of your energy and have nothing left for the finish. But John wants us to persevere, and so he holds out the promise of reward that you can enjoy perfect fellowship with God for all eternity. Rewards are not earned by works, but are according to works. Here is a challenging thought. Rewards are not earned by works. We don't earn anything from God, but God does reward us according to our works because he looks at our works and they are the corroborating evidence of faith in our heart. So God does call us to believe and to do the work of faith. And as we saw from John 6 earlier this morning where we read, people came to Jesus and they said, what must we do to be doing the works, plural, of God? Jesus said, the work singular of God is this, that you believe in him whom he has sent. And so from beginning to end, our salvation and our rewards are all tied to faith in Jesus Christ. But that faith is demonstrated by works. And so we do work for rewards, but the work of God is to believe. I want to encourage you to press on, continuing in faith, working, doing works of righteousness, but not out of your own strength but rather to do them as the Apostle Paul, who said, I worked harder than any of them, but it was not I, but the grace of God working through me. So any reward that's offered to us is received by persevering in the work of faith. So we must press on by grace through faith for the reward. So I encourage you, There is a reward that God holds out for you. You will receive a full reward if you persevere in faith with faith and trust in Jesus Christ. So press on, believing in him, trusting his promises, knowing that there is infinite joy and the reward of being with God forever. Will you pray with me? Lord our God, you hold out the promise of reward and we want to be guarded against turning that reward into an idol, thinking that the reward that you offer is something other than yourself, as if there were something better that you could give us. But Lord, you give us and offer to us the very best gift, your gift of yourself forever. And so we pray that you would help us to treasure you supremely, to pursue you by faith, to embrace you and cling to you by faith. 
and that that faith would produce works of righteousness so that we might receive a full reward. When you look at the works of our lives, Lord, may they demonstrate faith that treasures you and trusts in you supremely. Lord, as we sing now, Christ is mine forevermore, teach us to recognize that Christ is our reward, that there is no better gift than him, that there is no other God than you who works for those who wait for him, that you have prepared something beyond anything that our eye has ever seen, our ear has ever heard, or our mind could even conceive. You have prepared something much greater for those who love you. So Lord, we look forward to the reward that you have for us, and we, we pursue it by faith, by your grace, through Jesus our Lord. Amen.